0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Nicole Dennis-Benn, author of the novel Here Comes the Sun, which chronicles the tale of a working-class mother, Dolores, and her two daughters, Tandy and Margot, living in Montego Bay, Jamaica. More than anything, the story is about the sacrifices women make in Jamaican society for each other, for the country, and for mere survival. Dennis Benn covers issues including race, displacement, homophobia, rape, prostitution, class, and complexionism, which is the pursuit for darker girls to lighten their skin, something the young Tandy is obsessed with. We began our interview discussing why Dennis Ben came to America as a young teenage
1: lesbian. You know, when I came here, it was it was the homophobia for sure. It was also the classism and the complexionism, all of which are tackled in the book as well. Um, so feeling like I was a working class girl growing up there, um, feeling marginalized or kind of um, unwanted. You know, feeling that I did not have the upward the um, upward mobility or the the um, the ability to become upwardly upho- mobile from a working class status. And that was really what was plaguing me more than more than the homophobia, because, as I said, I wasn't out, but I was only out to myself. Um, but yes, the homophobia, um, to me, it was a scary thing um, in the beginning, especially in the 90s, when you heard the, the violence and the rapes. And so um, at the time, I didn't even have a word to describe what I was feeling. I just knew I was attracted to women. And that was that. I didn't have a word to it. And then um, on television, you know, you'll see people come on um, interviews, but they'll be bailed just for protection. And mm-hmm. things like that kind of incited um, this kind of fear. Um, so, of course, I came here and, you know, I felt like I could have been open, not to my parents, but also, but mostly to myself, because I was, you know, on a college campus. You know, I was definitely far away. Um, so that was a chance for me to explore um, those identities and also coming to myself because I didn't see myself as beautiful anyway um, as a dark-skinned working-class girl given what uh, the lessons um, or the messages that were implicit in um, in the media back home so all those things fell into place when I came to college here actually um, the book was set in 94 yes but in 2016 there's still a level of homophobia there still um, I don't hear the, the stories about um, you know debts as much but one thing that I always say is that Jamaica is also a, a tourism country, and the biggest push is also to not let it seem as though tourists can't come and enjoy themselves on the island, right? Because that's our biggest revenue. Um, so one of the things too is the messages now, you know, the like um, trying to sweep things under the carpet, like not report as much, or you know, J flag and um, gay organizations. There's immense pressure. Because they get the brunt of anything if, um, God forbid, they report certain things and make Jamaica look bad um, in the face of tourism. Um, so that's also a complex um, story as well. And so I, you know, I talk against that, but hopefully that individuals can really come forward and we can actually fix this. Um, because you know, one of the things is that homophobia is not just balance, it's also implicit in behavior. You know, so people are not protected. They could come out, but they could get fired because there are no rights protecting them. You know, they could get ostracized from friends, from family members. There are a lot of youths, homeless youths there in Jamaica right now who were kicked out by parents um, because, you know, they happened to find out that they were gay or lesbian. You know, so all these things um, that happen, uh, you know, it's not the violence, but it's really what happens um, inside the family or inside the community.
0: How did you end up as a writer? How did you find your voice? And why was this the story you wanted to tell?
1: I started out journaling. I'm a, I was a very big reader back home. And, you know, I've always told myself, oh, wow, you know, this is something I could totally do. However, because of the pressures um, that I felt, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, growing up in Jamaica, being the first um, first generation college um, college grad, I felt immense pressure to be a, a doctor you know, thinking, well, you know, it's the best thing to do, to put my, my family out of the working class, to to live upon those hills, up upper St. Andrew, you know, to, you know, to gain this status, right? And so I felt like a writer would not, being a writer would not have done that. Um, So for years, I was terrified of doing it and calling myself that out loud, right? But um, coming here and you know, working as a public health researcher at Columbia and noticing that, well, my passion is really writing and then delving even deeper into issues um, that I've experienced and that I want to, um, and even if I, don't, I didn't experience it, would want to bring it to the forefront. So really my public health background um, gave me the, the ability to do that, right, to look at things from an analytical lens and delving even deeper um, into certain issues and problems that I could actually bring to the forefront. Um, so, I think that really um, inspired me to even tap into, um, you know, I write a lot about women, and so I wanted to to bring forth the lives of these marginalized working class um, Jamaican women who I've never seen um, written with um, complexity on the page.
0: Yeah. So you so you write about a family. There's a, a mother and two daughters. So it's Dolores and Margot and Tandy. And they are working class and they're very poor. And the basic setup in their family is that Dolores and Margot will work as hard as they can to support Tandy. And the kind of sacrifice that Dolores and Margot underwent they both did things that were shameful and went against the way that you treat your family i mean in some ways Mm -hmm. i felt like it was maybe an the whole book was an allegory for jamaica and what has happened to that country can you talk about these individual women and what they had to do for this third family member
1: First of all, Dolores and Margot, Dolores being the mother, Margot, the older sister, mobility um, on the island is really tough, right? If you're born into a certain class, you're born into um, a certain socioeconomic um, structure, it's really, really hard to break out of that. And one of the other things, education is not free there. So, yes, you know, there are... School children who will get scholarships like Tandy did for this elite high school, but that was not given to Margot, right? Margot is smart, but she did not um, have that opportunity because one of the things that I wanted to um, that I talk about over and over. There's this exam, the Common Entrance Exam that we took to get into a certain high school. Now it's called a GSAT, and if you fail that exam at 10 years old or 11 years old, your destiny is determined for you. Right, so in this book itself, Margot did not do well on that exam. Right, so she went to a secondary school, and what the secondary school do? They actually um, funnel their kids into vocational um, work. So it could be a front desk clerk, it could be a handyman, it could be something. Right, while if you get into another, um, if you get into one of the elite high schools, which Tandy did and which I did, you get funneled into college. Right, and then hopefully later on graduate school. So. Um, basically you're stuck um, on the island if you don't have an opportunity to get out of the country and live a life that you want to live outside of that box that you've already been trapped in. So Margo, for example, is already trapped. And, you know, as a hotel clerk, she's not getting paid. And she tells herself, I want my sister to succeed. I don't want her to do what I'm doing Um, you know, she works as a prostitute at night to supplement her income and she says to Tandy, well, you know, art is not going to do it for you. It's actually going to be a doctor. Um, Dolores, who's the voice of our post-colonial scars, um, you know, she, it's definitely, um, obvious in terms of what she tells her daughter because of what society tells her. You're a black girl. You're not worthy of love. And of course, because you're not worthy, you could be exploited. You could, um, you know, all you could be invisible. You know, so, of course, when she sold her or her her oldest daughter, that was also her desperation to make ends meet as that market vendor, as that um, that vendor, you know, who desperately wanted a way out of her situation as well. You know, she has her own her own scars to deal with. And, you know, even with parents, you know, sometimes parents think they're good parents. Yes. But there are things that we pass down to our children that we don't know we're passing down because it was actually given to us. And, you know, to break out of that would take a lot of work, probably therapy, but not everybody has that ability to go to therapy or, you know, sit and reflect on really what's going on here. So Dolores herself had passed on that story. And I love that you said um, it's kind of like an allegory. You know, I really wanted it to be a parallel in terms of how our island, Jamaica, has been exploited, right? And the parallel that with exploitation of the bodies of women. And so that was my um, intention. Um, so I'm really glad that you you picked up on that.
0: This is first draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Nicole Dennis benn author of the novel Here Comes the Sun. Our interview was recorded via Skype. Well, the idea as of women as property is very powerful in this. Um, from Dolores's first sacrifice of Margot as as a commodity to Margot's future occupation and many many girls in this book who are used for sex and i just was mm-hmm. wondering i mean obviously it's something that if they have nothing they still have that you know if they have no no money nothing they can still sell their bodies so one
1: thing that's that in our culture one word that you'll never hear in our culture is feminism right it's such a male dominated society and you know, when I made the decision to use three female protagonists, three working class female protagonists, it was actually to depict the issues on the island itself. So not only the homophobia, which you have seen, um, or the classism, um, you know, or the complexionism, but also um, the sexualization of our girls, right? You hear it in our dancehall music all the time, you know, young girls, right for the picking, right, since she was 12 years old. Um, and I talked about this in an essay I wrote for the New York times, um, a couple of weeks ago where, you know, as soon as you get into that high school uniform, and like I said, the high school starts at 10 years old, 11 years old, as soon as you get into that uniform, then you are, um, ex- that you're actually exposed, like the, the, I, the, the predators are there, right. To say, well, she's young. She's, she's the, she's the, the one that we want, right. So young girls are looked at like women in our society, and no one one talks about that. Not even if we get raped or violated, you know, the conversation shifts to something else, like homophobia, but not talking about the young girls who are there and the pedophiles who are walking around freely.
0: So one of the things that I found interesting was the complexionism, because I know that that exists in the US. So can you talk about that? Like, this idea that even though you're in a country that's primarily black, the shades still matter.
1: Yes, it does. Um, it really was, you know, from history. So what happened is that when we were, we were definitely um, colonized by the British, you know, we did have, um, you know, whites living on the island and they left, right? But there are people who, um, you know, there the, are the, um, relationships that happened black and white or when the indentured slaves came over, you know, um, there was a mix, mixing, Um so, of course, the individuals who are mixed race, you know, have a lighter shade and still um, adheres to, adhere to this whole concept of beauty um, by the Northern European standards. And so, of course, looking at the Africans, you know, they, they were perceived as ignorant, as unattractive. And that, that was actually maintained on the island for generations upon generations. So um, a lot of people would The the thing that you like you meet first cousins, for example, and one cousin could be mixed with Indian, which is very prevalent on the island. But that cousin who is mixed would look down on the person who is not mixed because, you know, the light that they have the lighter shade that that other cousin does not have. Right. So that um, and I know an outsider would see all these um, these people as all black. Right. But in the country itself or in the Caribbean, not only in Jamaica. In the Caribbean itself, you know, um, it's how what you're mixed with and how that mixing um, in terms of the, um, the prototype, like if you're lighter skinned with that good, we call that good hair, the long, fine hair, or even the light eyes, right? It's more acceptable um, physically than just plain African. And so that's really what I meant by complex, what we um, refer to when we talk about complexionism. Um, And a lot of the working class, darker skin population, you know, um, especially the younger girls now and the younger boys, they're bleaching their skin like what you saw in Here Comes the Sun with Tandy, bleaching their skin, feeling that that's what's going to get them the the acceptance and the access, right? Because one thing that um, I wanted to mention too, you know, the upper class, they're mostly paler, they're whiter or they're mixed and, you know, they live on these hills in these nice big houses, and everybody wants to get there, right? And so um, thinking bleaching their skin would actually give them that access and that acceptance um, is something that, we, we, I mean, now there's a huge conversation about it on the island, but it has been happening for many, many years. Do you think that it's changing at all? It's not. It's not. Right now, what's happening is that they're sending these children home. Right, They're being expelled from school because when the, when the principals are finding that they're bleaching, they're sending them home. And that's not the right way to do it because people see it as vanity. But it's even deeper than that. It's really these children crying out, saying, well, in our own country, we don't feel like we're accepted. We don't feel like we're loved or worthy. And this is what we do to be, become worthy in your eyes. And no, nobody's tapping into that. Nobody's counseling them. Nobody is tapping into media like what are the messages that you're giving our children right to this day or Miss Universe and or Miss Jamaica World they're all um, certain girls of certain hue and so a dark skinned black girl looking at that would say to herself well I don't look like that I'm not beautiful
0: so all these women who work as prostitutes you have one line that it's it's a pretty simple line and it says they bring business to the island
1: that shuns them can you talk about this line Yes. So that's another thing, too, where, the, again, a whole class of people are marginalized, are ignored. Right. But it's really what they can do for the country. Right. So these girls are prostituting themselves. The tourists are giving them a lot of money and it's being funneled back into the economy. Right. Same like, you know, the, whoever sells weeds on the weed on the side. Right or again, these people on the um, giving this fantasy of of this island. Right, the, the people who you see in the resorts, right, they're in the face of of tourism. Right, the hotel clerks, the maids who spread the bed, the the gardeners, the landscapers. These are people who are getting money and it's going back into the economy. But yet, still, they go home to nothing right? They're not given the education, then the infrastructure is not there. They're going home to shacks or to, to homes that have no electricity. You know, there, there's no way of, um, it's like, they're just not, they're regarded as, as, as nobodies, right? By the same country that expects them to, to smile and grin for the tourists. You know, so that's something that I really wanted to tap into, like holding up that mirror, like Jamaica. You know, yes, it's a love story to Jamaica, but really, Jamaica, what are you doing? What are you doing to our people? Right. You're prostituting them. And so I wanted to show that. And again, you know, with the exploitation of the women's bodies, yes, but the island itself is that prostitute.
0: They're also losing their homes, which is something else that you touch on is when a resort wants to come in and a resort came into this area where these women live in, it was a poor area, but it had access to this beautiful beach. Everyone's just like, sorry, got to leave. It's not, you know, it was just, they were swept away. Can you talk about the sort of um, land issues involved with resorts in Jamaica?
1: Yeah, you know, so again, displacement. Tourism is that money maker. So building these um, huge, great resorts and moving people out to, out of their communities, right? That's something too that's happening. Um, one thing I should say though, um, you know, because I don't want it to come off as if I don't love Jamaica. Like I really do love my country. I really appreciate Jamaica. And um, again, here comes the song was a love letter, and you know, just showing what really happens to the people when um, when they're forgotten, you know, and you know, if there, if there could be a possibility of these resorts, for example, giving back to the community, that would have been great. And um, one hotel that's really doing that now is Rock House Hotel. They're giving, um, they're giving scholarships to children um, in primary schools, and I commend them for that. So if they actually do that, like give back to our Jamaican economy, that would be a great thing right? Like, for the, um, if they do want to use that land and displace the people, then how about building a, um, a community, right, where these people can live, as opposed to just leaving them to themselves to find new places to, to go.
0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Nicole Dennis-Benn, author of the novel, Here Comes the Sun. Our interview was recorded via Skype. So one of the things that I thought was interesting, all the women seem to shun the Rastas, and it's what people, a lot of people envision as is Jamaica, but I thought it was interesting that they just wanted no part of these sorts of men.
1: Yeah, um, it was an interesting dynamic, and I get this question a lot, uh, where, yes, the Rastas, you know, right now, every time you look at a souvenir, it's a Rasta, right? But Marley was a Rasta, the one love concept, but um as I said, we, we were colonized by the British. We we're a very Christian country. Um so Rastafarianism um is definitely not the most popular religion. I mean, yes, it's popular in terms of um in terms of um what they preach or, or their their um existence on the island, but in terms of the acceptance, it's something that is not um there at all. Like families whole families would tell their kids not to grow dreadlocks because you don't wanna be a Rasta, right? So they're a marginalized community as well. Um, and that's something too. Um, I remember, for example, I had a cousin who, you know, he came up as a Rasta. He started growing his locks, started reading Marcus Garvey, like Ma- that Maxi character in the book. And, you know, he was not, he was ostracized, basically. So, yeah, it's not looked at as a great religion, but yet still, I do think, though, that their philosophy, right, they are preaching of you know, loving ourselves um, as a people, you know, especially as an African people, I think, I think we could learn a lot from them, right? I really do think if I was raised with a Rastafarian um, perspective, I think I would have been a lot better in terms of um, how I, the confidence that I have as a Black woman, as a working class, dark-skinned Black girl, I think I would have um, had a more positive upbringing um, of self-worth, knowing my self-worth more.
0: Another aspect of the book that I I find really interesting and necessary, but also sort of difficult is that a lot of the book for these characters is written in Patois. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for a general white reader, it's, it's like reading a foreign language. I mean, there you can get it, but it takes a while. It takes like sort of a shift. And I found by the end of the book, I was like with the rhythm and I understood what they were saying. But at first, I, I, it was really difficult for me that I'm sure is really hard for any reader who's not familiar with this language. And I think when you choose to write in, in a dialect in a book, it's a very deliberate decision. Can you talk about this?
1: Yeah, um, so we were not, um, so in schools, you know, we were told not to write or speak in Patois. And that's another um, thing, you know, we talk about the colonization, right? So, you know, Patois was regarded as a backward language. But, you know, the people that I'm writing about, the working class individuals, they're speaking this unobserved, right? They wouldn't be speaking standard English to each other. So I wanted to capture the authenticity um, in dialogue, uh, by using patois in dialogue and, um, you know, also forcing the reader to slow down, you know, because one thing is that, um, you know, the words like in terms of um, the like pronouncing the words, for example, you know, I, I was hoping that by, by, the, by the end, of, by the middle of the book, there would be a rhythm. Because I really did not um, want, for example, Dolores to be speaking the British, the Queen's English. That would not be true to who Dolores is, or even to who um, Margot and Tandy. Well, Tandy, you see, she struggles with that, you know, because of course, going to the kind of school she's going to, you know, Patwa to speak it out loud, you're backwards, you know. So I wanted to also depict that struggle as well, and forcing the readers to see who these women are, because. Like I said before, I wanted to, to really show working class people on that on the page, and you know, language is a huge form of identity, and you know, to eliminate their their language completely, I felt like I wouldn't I wouldn't be true to them. And Juno Diaz, um, you know, he gave me permission to do that. Um, you know, in his his, his um, in his um, story, slipping in and out of Spanish for example. And, you know, as a reader, I felt like I was highly rewarded. I mean, at first, you know, I didn't get what the Spanish words were, but then after a while, it was like, it still, I got the story. And so writers like Juno Diaz or even um, Zora Neale Hurston, um, you know, actually gave me permission to play around with language and to and maintain the authenticity of, of characters. Can you talk about the title? Oh, yes. So Here Comes the Sun. Of course, it's definitely not um, inspired by the Beatles song at all. Um, but I, it, this is an um, interesting story. I did not, honestly, I did not even think about the Beatles song when I came up with the title. Um, it was more of the irony of um, of what we, have, what we spoke about before. So, you know, being um, like fearful of the sun in itself, not only because it can get you darker and thus marginalize us even more right, but also using the sun to, um, to shine light, right, to shine light on the desperation um, that's inherent in poverty, right, I wanted to use that sun, right, as that glaring force. And so that's why Here Comes the Sun, you know, that's that why that, that was why that title, um, that was how that title came about, right, the irony.
0: What do you hope your readers walk away with
1: from this novel? One of the things that I, I want to do as a writer, not in, only in here comes to somebody in all my works, is tap into the human experience. So yes, this story is set in Jamaica, and yes, it taps into themes like complexionism, um, but it also explores um, the theme of love that we spoke about earlier, acceptance, which we all have been there, right? And we have all, um, at one point in our lives, grappled with identity. And displacement, right? Because displacement doesn't really only happen on the island itself. It happens here in Bedside, Brooklyn, where I'm speaking to you from. Happens in D.C., in California, right? It could be anywhere. And I've had readers um, reach out to me saying, wow, you know, this could have been my story as well, you know, because of um, the mother-daughter relationship, right? There are women here in this country, or even in Europe, I've gotten emails where they're saying, well, I had a similar relationship with my mother. Right. And that to me is important to hear because I wanted to also depict um, that that first relationship that we have with our mothers and how that informs us um, in terms of our adulthood as women and as mothers ourselves. Right. So um, so all those things I wanted to walk away with and learning more about a country that, you know, you see us on the Sandals commercial, but really the other side of that paradise. Like, Who are these people? behind that fantasy, right? Giving them a voice as well, giving them a seat at the table as well to tell their stories. Um, So I wanted that for sure.
0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Nicole Dennis-Benn, author of the novel, Here Comes the Sun. Well, can you talk about um, writers that might have influenced you? Can you read a passage from a writer that influenced you as a, a burgeoning
1: author or when you were writing this? I love Jacqueline Woodson, right? Um, I read Brown, Girl, Brown Girl's Dreaming. Um, but the, the passage that I I selected here was her recent um, book, Another Brooklyn. And this is why, because I, I, as I said before, I really hardly see female characters um, on the, uh, the rounded, complex female characters of color um, in, in the Caribbean. And so... This here, um, another Brooklyn, um, if, it's, if it's okay for me to read this excerpt that I think speaks to what I'm try- I was trying to bring across with Here Comes the Sun by using three female protagonists. Somehow my brother and I grew up motherless, yet halfway whole. My brother had the faith my father brought him to, and for a long time I had Sylvia, Angela, and Gigi, the four for sharing the weight of growing up girl in Brooklyn, as though It was a bag of stones we passed among ourselves saying, here, help me carry this. I thought that was really powerful. Um, And then um, another page that she um, continued this dialogue, you know, for God so loved the world, their father would say he gave his only begotten son. But what about his daughters? I wondered, what did God do with his daughters? That, was, that resonated with me because um, post, here, post writing here comes to some because I, I really thought, think that it's important to put female protagonists on the page. I feel like we have heard male voices over and over again. But I wanted to see more um, women, especially women of color, and in my, in my case, working class women of color on the page. And I think Jacqueline, in, in that narrative, said it all. What about, what about his daughters? Right. So the, the unspoken stories, the stories that we hide as women, you know, how we're silenced. And, you know, we live with those silences for years. And I wanted to talk, I want to tap into that with my work.
0: Can you read a passage that you wrote? It could be something that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you really like how it turned out.
1: All right. So this scene, um, w- which was the hardest for me um, to write, was when Tandy. Um, And here comes the sun when Tandy went into the the water for the first time and Charles um, had to chase her back. Um, So here. Charles hasn't followed. The disappointment disorients her, but it is quickly replaced by fear, which creeps upon her with each wave that rises like a giant blue wall. They tumble toward her, each one bigger than the other. Tandy loses her footing and goes under. She tries to float as long as she can her eyes on the sky, angry at herself for acting a fool. Her hands flail against the avalanche of waves as she tries to swim. She's not sure which direction she's turned. The undercurrent pulls her with possessive force. She remembers why the fishermen call this sea, sorry, this area pregnant Heidi. For the waves are majestic, rising like the concave belly of a woman with child. The tales date back to the days of slavery when a slave girl named Heidi flung herself into the sea after finding out that she was pregnant with her master's baby. And I'll stop there. Um, so, that, you know, I had several drafts of that one particular paragraph. And, um, you know, mostly to, you know, that writing the waves and, you know, her reaction to almost drowning, you know, and then um, resurfacing. And, you know, I was really happy with how it turned out. But that was, I don't know why, you know, Why that was one scene that gave me so much, um, so much of a challenge to write, you know, but I really wanted to stay true to her reaction in that moment. Where do you write? I read, I write here um, in my home study for editing. You know, there are times when I would walk, walk around the corner to a cafe, um, but mostly to generate new ideas, I stay home.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Uh, oh, my goodness. I travel. I would probably ride my bike or take walks. You know, my wife, you know, and I do a lot of things together. And I'm glad that, um, you know, I could actually not have to think about writing with her because she herself, you know, she's not a writer. And so to, to immerse myself in her world, you know, definitely takes me away from, from writing. And also family, you know, visiting family or even friends. You know, um, those are things I love doing, you know, socializing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to my wife first. You know, I have her as a reader and also have a great friend, um, Janay, who she lives in D.C. And, you know, she'll be one of my first readers. Um, Even before, you know, I show show it to my agent, who is my third reader. Um, So those those three people, actually. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, my goodness. Before Here Comes the Sun, you know, when I was in grad school, you know, I would submit um, short stories. And I remember it was more like something that I use rejections as lessons, you know, because I'm not a short story writer. However, I did ex- appreciate those rejections that were really nice rejections. Like, oh, yeah, you know, this is why um, I did not, you know, like the story and some of those rejections that rejection letters I've kept. um, and even when I was shopping um the novel around my not this one but the first novel um of course, it's not I don't have that novel anymore, but I remember there were people who were saying to me, "Wow, you know this is a great story, but and the encouragement at the end of that letter that was those are the rejections that I really enjoyed reading
0: and what is your favorite word
1: actually, actually. <laughs> I say it all the time when I'm talking and I notice that there are times when it creeps into my work and I'm just like, oh no. And I'm working on it actually. Well, see, I nearly said it again.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Nicole Dennis-Benn, author of the novel Here Comes the Sun. Our interview was recorded via Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.